Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Smart People Podcast. I'm Chris Stem. And I'm John Rojas. Thanks for joining us today. We have a interesting talk today with, with somebody who is a leader in the podcast field, in the new media field. He's kind of pushing the good fight forward, if you will. You know what I mean, John? I know exactly what you mean. And we have somebody to thank for pointing us in the direction of our guest. One of our listeners. One of our listeners, Ben, reached out to us on the contact me on smartpeoplepodcast.com. Let us know that we should interview this guy. We reached out, got him. Yeah. And how it works. And it was a great talk. I mean, really, if you're interested at all in media of all forms, we tend to focus on podcasting, but we're talking about the shift and the way content is created and disseminated throughout you know the world and how we're continually moving towards this entrepreneurial environment where startups can pop up with low barriers to entry and things like that. So really interesting. About to hop into that here, but wanted to mention some things to you. First, as John mentioned, head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com, shoot us an email, or you could also just email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. We have some Cool stuff that we're going to put together and send out at some point. Shortly. Keep your eyes open. While you're on our site signing up for the newsletter, go ahead and click the Amazon banner at the top of the page. Remember that any shopping you do through the Amazon banner will give us a little kickback. It's a great way to support the show. Keeps the lights running. Keeps the internet host hosting. We appreciate that. We really do. We appreciate any of your help, support, emails, reaching out, telling us you like what we do. 
it's what gets us going and keeps us working well after the workday has ended. So with that long spiel behind us, let's get into this interview with Dan Carlin. Dan Carlin is a baller of a podcaster. Two huge shows that get tons of downloads. He's got a great community going. His two shows are Hardcore History, which he describes as his creative outlet, really interesting topics such as uh, who is more evil, Alexander the Great versus Hitler. I thought that was an interesting one. But anyways, his other one is Common Sense, which is a political-based show that he kind of, it's edgy and it's fun, it's interesting. It makes you think a little bit, which is what we're all about here. We want you thinking. Get away from the TV, pop us in, go for a run, walk your dog, enjoy us on your commute. All right, Dan. Well, again, thank you for being on the show. We appreciate it. One of the first things I wanted to talk to you about, you know, you have a couple podcasts out there, Common Sense and Hardcore History, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how you got to creating those podcasts and, you know, just building this platform that you've built up for yourself. What were the steps that you took? Can you just give us a little bit of background about yourself and uh, let us know how you got to be in the position of new media that you're in? Well, I mean, I think we've been very fortunate with timing. And I'm not sure timing, I think timing is like trying to time the stock market. You, you just, it's a matter of luck, I think. And years ago, I was a, a standard talk radio show host on the radio and got hired by a guy who was a computer genius. And this is like in 1996 or 97 to put, my computer to put my radio program on the internet and I didn't even know how you would do that way back then but he had this whole plan for developing a a way to do it and all this kind of stuff and long story short he hired me away from a radio station to do this it took years and many different sort of uh, uh, morphing into other projects before podcasting sort of came around and provided the vehicle literally right around the time that iTunes came out for us to do this, but we had already set everything up and were ready to go. And we had a company with a guy who had just come over to our company from Apple. And he said, I happen to know that Apple's about to release this big menu system called iTunes. And you need to have this radio show you've been planning for years. You need to have it out now. This is the the kick in the rear end. Everybody needs to make this happen. And so we followed his advice and we jokingly refer to it as carving out a piece of territory for ourselves in the podcasting world that sort of predated most, I think there's like a half million podcasts out there now. And when we started, it was a much smaller group and you were able to sort of get yourself established in a way that I think would be very tough if you were just starting a brand new podcast today. So I think there was some luck in the timing uh, and I really can't claim any credit for it. That's awesome. And did you said that you had previous radio experience or... Were you just enamored with radio? I mean, you have I mean, you have a great sound on your podcast and you've got a great voice for radio. Did you have previous radio experience or was it just something You know, I did, I did radio for a dozen years uh, before uh, podcasting and I was a television news reporter before then. So I, I was in broadcasting, but the lack of creative control used to just drive me nuts in sure. whether it was in news or I mean, I used to argue I was on the radio during all that O.J. Simpson murder trial stuff. And I mean, the arguments that I would have with management over do we discuss O.J. Simpson or do we discuss other topics? 
I mean, those are the kind of things that just made you. I mean, when when I had the opportunity to just have total freedom and never have to answer to any sort of management, that for me was like a dream come true. So podcasting is is everything I liked about radio minus all the things I didn't like. It's funny because John and I obviously never having done radio, just jumping right into podcasting, can't even imagine a world where somebody's kind of dictating what kind of content we're putting up. So I can't even I can't even begin to imagine if somebody said this is how you're going to run your show. I'd be like, kiss my ass. <laughs> well, and I mean, to, to be honest, I, those are almost the exact words I used to <laughs> right. use. And, and for whatever reason, I was good enough to keep my gig. But it was a, I fought a lot with management, which didn't create a very uh, wholesome work environment. And I constantly have to tell people who I think assume that every podcaster would like to graduate to some sort of radio gig someday that that's not the way it is, that this is actually a better gig in every single respect than the, the you know, in air quotes, the, the talk radio gig I used to have. I have more listeners. I actually make more money, which isn't saying much because talk radio <laughs> people don't get paid as much as everyone thinks. But I mean, in every way, shape and form, it's a better gig for me. And the listeners are so much more appreciative. And I mean, in radio, a lot of people are listening because that's just their favorite station. And maybe they listen to the person before you or after you. With podcasting, you know, when you listen to a particular host, that's a destination for someone. They're deliberately listening to hear you. So the whole thing is better. The average age of people's a lot younger, which uh, which is better for me anyway. I didn't I didn't like having an audience in the mid fifties and sixty years old range. So I mean, like I said, this whole thing has worked out really well for me. And in a funny way, all of that media experience that I got before getting into podcasting, I look at as just priming me to get me ready for my podcasting years. Right. And and that definitely makes sense. What is your take on podcasting as a form of media going forward? I mean, coming again, John and I starting a few years ago, which honestly, I feel like if we started now, it would be exponentially more difficult. We didn't get it on the ground floor, but we're definitely not, uh, you know, where it is now. But going forward, how do you think, is it going to become more mainstream? There's still a large portion of the population that never has downloaded a podcast in their life. Well, it, 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 it's an interesting way I would have to answer that question because when you say, is it going to become more mainstream, I think one of the wonderful things about it is that it's not designed to become more mainstream. Mainstream sort of gets us back to the old line broadcasting, which is how they used to describe radio and TV. And it basically means you reach a wide spectrum of the audience. Podcasting is narrow casting. It's not designed to meet a wide spectrum. As a matter of fact, I, I see it getting much bigger, but I don't necessarily see it broadening out. For example, let's say your kid is in Little League. When I was in Little League, they used to put out a little newsletter to tell everybody, okay, the number one team did this well this week, and here's what's for sale at the snack bar and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> I, I foresee those people having their own little podcast. To be able to use a cheap and easy distribution model like we have now that you and I use all the time now at the very lower levels, to have one for every school, to have one for every uh, like I said, a little league or your your child's soccer league, whatever. I, I, I just see this as such a wonderful way without the startup costs and the maintenance costs for people to broadcast 
even to a very small audience, it makes it cost effective. You're definitely going to see, I think, the, biz the business side of this grow. Um, this is a perfect way to do presentations or to have a whole bunch of podcasts. Let's say if you're a business and you're going to be training new people, why should you have to give that same presentation over and over again when you can do 10 or 12 podcasts, put them up on your corporate website, and just tell your new employees, okay, the online tutorials online in podcast form, download and listen to those and then come and see me when you're done. I mean, so I, th I think we've barely scratched the surface, but I'm not sure that it's going to be like uh, the Drudge Report as a podcast. I mean, I don't know that you're going to have that kind of depth and impact, but I don't know that you need to. I love the narrow casting. It's a great, it's a great thing. It's a niche media, yes. if you will. But um, when you're online and, and you've got more than a billion people online, even some of these small little niches can be significant numbers of actual ears, you know, listening. Right. No, exactly. It's one of those things that is kind of mind blowing when you end up doing it. I want to switch gears a little bit and, and kind of dive into your two popular podcasts that you run, Common Sense and Hardcore History, kind of starting off with Common Sense. That's a very political based kind of edgy podcast that you run have you always been interested in po in uh, politics or what kind of drove you to go that route that that the common sense podcast is a lot like the radio show we used to do and it was the one it was the podcast that we started off with first it was the one that originally i was going to before there was podcasting when we were going to put you know in air quotes my show on the internet that's what my show is we used to have different names for it but if you listened to my radio show over the years it doesn't sound a whole lot different than common sense sounds now. We don't take listener phone calls like we did on the radio and such. But by and large, in terms of the approach, the topics, um, what you hear from me, because basically you are hearing me. So I didn't change whether you were hearing me on the radio or uh, in podcasting. So that, that common sense program is essentially, I mean, when you hear Adam Curry do his, uh, his podcast, he's doing a form of a radio show. Uh, using a podcast as a delivery system, too. And that's what common sense is. Hardcore history is a very different animal. And it only came to me after we started doing podcasts and we could start to see, hey, you know, um, we can start to talk about creating new forms of media that wouldn't have worked in the radio world. I know common sense would work in the radio world because I used to do it on radio. Hardcore history wouldn't work in the radio world. It wouldn't work with commercial breaks. Um, and it takes, I think... It takes a while of doing podcasts before your mind opens up to how much of a free artistic creative space that gives you. And after we've been doing Common Sense for a while, um, you know, you start thinking, wow, you know, there are other things I can do with this medium. And once you've got sort of one show worked out to where you can kind of do it in an assembly line format, when you've got a schedule all figured out, you know, it, you know, it seemed only natural to say, well, can we put out more content and can we start to experiment with new forms and artistic styles? And that's what hardcore history is. So, so for me, that's, that's the more creative of the genres because I'd been doing common sense for years on the radio. Hardcore history is a more uh, newer uh, venue for me. I do have to mention again, one of our listeners actually was the one that put me in touch with your show and helped me discover you. And the actual episode that he sent over to me was a seat at the table and I listened to that uh, while doing research for this show and absolutely loved that episode. I mean, I, being a podcaster, I thought it was awesome that, you know, you were contacted by essentially, you know, a government think tank to come in and do some outside the box thinking. 
Can you give our listeners a little tease into that episode and just let them know what the story was behind A Seat at the Table? Well, I can certainly understand why podcasters would be jacked about this. <laughs> let, me try, let me try to set it up for your listeners so they understand why it's such a cool thing for you and for me and for all the people in our business. Um, I'm, I'm kind of hard on our government uh, in my political podcast, and I think most people can probably understand why. Uh, I think they basically deserve it. Um, so all of a sudden, I got an email and a, a, a regular snail mail message purporting to be from U.S. CENTCOM, U.S. Central Command. They're the, the U.S. has divided the world into different commands, and CENTCOM is the one in charge of basically the Middle East, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, all those places we're fighting. And the letter said, uh, we're going to have this get-together. We want you to be involved. You're an outside-the-box thinker, all this kind of nonsense that sounded to me like a scam. I mean, I really thought somebody was pulling my leg. Um, but long story short, after a lot of checking, sure enough, the government's listening to the podcast, which is both scary and, I guess, exhilarating and a compliment at the same time. And they got me in this room with a bunch of these other uh, august thinkers. And the funny part was, you know, they put our names on the sheet of guests. And it's all these people, some of whom you would recognize if you saw their names. I'm not supposed to say who the names are. But then they have right in the middle, because it was all alphabetized, Dan Carlin, podcaster. It seemed like such a small title compared to, to these things. All these other people have doctors in front of their names and giant think tanks afterwards. And here I am, podcaster. But like I said in the show, to me, what this says is that podcasters are getting noticed. Um in all the scary ways, too. I mean, when you think about the people at the Pentagon listening to your show, it's a little unsettling. And it definitely, you know, when you're sitting there planning your show, you're thinking, okay, how are the guys at the Pentagon going to react to this? <laughs> but, but at the same time, it is a little bit like podcasting coming of age. And I remember feeling like, okay, this is a pretty august group of people to include a podcaster in. And I, I looked at that as sort of a benchmark that after, what is it, seven or eight years of podcasting, it's a legitimate form of media. I mean, I was one of only three media people in the room, and I was the only new media person in the room. So um, to me, that's that's another one of those benchmarks that you hope represents a coming-of-age moment for podcasting. I hope. I mean, it's definitely awesome, especially being in new media. You know, I was just at an event today, and I was telling people what I do, and I mentioned that I run a podcast, and a lot of them kind of just looked at me for a second. And then when I told them, some of the numbers we do and people we've talked to and that kind of stuff, they were like, oh, okay, here's my business card. I want to get in touch with you and talk to you. You know, you might be able to promote my book or my whatever event they have coming up, that kind of thing. But it, it really is cool to be in the middle of this podcast universe as it's starting to get more legitimacy, I guess. It is kind of hard when they ask you at parties and stuff, what is it you do for a living? And oh, yeah. I always have to say, you know, it's, it's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's no, it takes a long time to explain what I do for a living. Do you ever tell them that you just do an internet radio show or you'll not drop those names together? It depends on who I'm talking to and how savvy I think they are. If they're over a certain age, I throw internet radio show out there. If they're young <laughs> enough, I always start with podcasts and see whether or not I get the glazed over look in their eyes or not. And, you know, because some people instantly pick up on it and you go, okay, I, I don't have to go any farther than that. To say. They always want to know how we're doing. You know, I mean, can you make a living in podcasting? But a lot of times you'll tell them, and I know you know this, you'll say you're in podcasting and there's this look like they don't know how to react to that. So you have to kind of go, you know, like internet radio, I do it out of my home studio. And after four or five clarifications, I can usually get some level of understanding. 
You know, it's interesting you mentioned people saying, how do you make a living out of podcasting? And granted, we are not doing that, but aspire to be there one day. But a lot of the population doesn't understand how new media and not just media, but things like iPhone apps, like mobile apps and things, how they kind of make money because it's a much different way of going about things than it was even five or 10 years ago. So I was wondering if for the people that don't know, what is your way of supporting yourself and the show and to give them a better understanding of what goes on behind the scenes at a, at a, you know, a podcast production? Well, I look at this as part of a trend. I mean, when you see like uh, bands like Radiohead releasing their music and saying, pay us what you think it's worth. I think that's kind of the rate, the wave we're all riding here. We can't live off any single uh, revenue stream. So there's several things we try to do, and we hope at the end of the day when they all add up that it's a, a decent amount of money in the hat. I mean, we, we sell our old shows. You know, we, they're, they're on our uh, web page for free for a while, and then we retire them and sell them for, like, you know, what you would pay for an iTunes song. Uh, we run some advertising on the show. We have an Amazon search window on the website. So if you buy Amazon stuff through our website, we get a tiny kickback from that. And the main way we make money is with listener donations. And we do it with a very soft sell. We don't uh, badger you during the show. I mean, at the very end, we'll, we'll remind you that we hope to get a buck a show from everybody. And um, people have embraced that in a way that I honestly didn't think possible. I actually went before we started doing this to a bunch of experts. And this is seven or eight years ago. So they had very little of this uh, modern data we're operating with now to go on. But every one of them told me it was a fool's errand, that nobody would give to anybody who was giving their stuff away for free. And we had to figure out some business model that would withhold the prize from the audience member until they paid us. And I just, I remember thinking maybe we'll have to do that down the road, but let's see if they'll just pay us initially. And so far, so good is all I can say. I mean, if you compare how we're doing to the predictions that people gave us before we started about how well we do, I mean, it's night and day. I mean, I think the listeners understand better. I mean, Andrew Sullivan, who wrote for the Daily Beast up until I think a couple of weeks ago, he just started taking subscriptions from his readers. And I think he got like a million dollars in a few days. Don't quote yep. me on that. But it was some unbelievably higher number than what he was told. I remember reading all these tweets to him from people inside the business saying, enjoy starving and stuff like that. And I remember thinking, these are people that still haven't awakened to the fact that there's a whole age group and demographic on the Internet that is willing to give you, after they've already consumed your product, money for it if they liked it. I really think it's a whole different business model, and I think they understand that if you want to keep this new media there functioning, that this is how it's going to have to operate. And it's kind of an honor system, and I think we're all shocked that anybody is, is participating in it at all. And if they keep participating in it to the degree that they have been so far, we can make this thing work, and I'm shocked to say that. And I think... Uh, I think I would find a very skeptical me seven or eight years ago if I could go back on a time machine and explain to myself how this was going to work in seven or eight years. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, I look at how much choice I have that's out there, and I can go to 15 different places to get a similar good. And then if those people offer it to me for free... At some point, I'm like, oh, this is my favorite of those 15. I'm going to reward them by paying them at some point. 
And I think that is, you know, the, the business model that you're seeing with Radiohead and like some of these bigger bands who have tried that pay for free. And then, as you mentioned with Andrew Sullivan, but you're right, you know, five, six years ago, people would think, oh, you're crazy. You have to keep stuff locked up in the store until they actually give you the money. But with the amount of choices that we have out there and the amount of avenues we have to get this stuff, like it just doesn't work that way anymore. And it's it's cool to see that the podcasting world is realizing that. I mean, there's tons of shows that operate in a similar fashion. And you're starting to see the music and movie industries come into line as well. And I think it's going to take some of these older execs either retiring or going away or finally realizing, oh, our old business model is broken. We need to adjust and adapt. Well, I'll tell you, it's even affected me. I see how this whole mentality can spread because I'm not naturally one of those people who would give to my show if, it, if the shoe were on the other foot. Mm-hmm. But since I've started being the recipient of these donations, I find myself donating to other online uses that I use, Wikipedia, columnists yeah. that I enjoy when they ask for it, based on this idea, well, my goodness, I'm asking for money and people give me money. It's the least I can do to sort of pay it forward with these other people. So I find that it has an effect on me where I'm now donating to causes online that I never would have thought to donate to because I've started to realize the only reason I have any money to donate is because people are doing that with me. <laughs> so it becomes it becomes this thing where you, you almost learn how to exist in this new media mentality now, and the listeners have taught me that. Now, do you think that's because those listeners are almost in the same situation too where they're used to doing the same thing and it's just becoming this new generation of people who are looking at business exchanges differently? I have my own theory about this, and it's something we all need to thank the old media for. And it has to do with the fact that we can compete with what's out there on television and radio. I I truly believe if this were 30 years ago, it would be very hard for us to make inroads. I think the level of quality of old media entertainment and production values and everything has gone down so quickly and to such a degree that people are hungering. I mean, take take the Hardcore History podcast. I think if there were a couple of good television networks really doing a good job with history, it would be a lot harder for me to interest audiences in what I do. But the History Channel is doing shows about truckers and ghosts hunting and all this stuff now, which opens the door to me in a way that might not otherwise be available. If the quality of media that most people have access to free in their homes, you know, in the way that they've been used to consuming it forever, if that quality hasn't hadn't diminished so much. But I think the consolidation of media has led to a combination of dumbing down media, but also lowest common denominator stuff, low production values. I mean, they don't even want to pay for good writers anymore, so we do the, all this reality show mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, the quality is really low, and it helps those of us who don't have the advantages of paid writing staffs and the production values and the publicity machines and all that other stuff, it helps us to compete. And I think when people think, okay, you know, money's tight, but should I give Dan Carlin's show some money? And they think, well, if I don't give Dan Carlin's show some money, I'm going to be stuck with ice road truckers. Hmm. I, th- I think it I think it helps me a little bit in a way that it might not if the, uh, the quality of the other things they had uh, access to was as good as it was 30 years ago. You know, it's so funny you mentioned that. That's literally one of the reasons why we created this show. I sat there and I like learning in my free time, learning by consumption, whether it be reading or listening to podcasts or talking to people, whatever it might be. 
And there is almost nothing left on TV that that does that. Not saying that TV is this educational forum in the first place, but come on, like a little something here and there. Now it's just Mythbusters or something, you know? Oh, I can tell you, though, from experience, because the podcast have gotten large enough. So I have an agent and the agent sends me down to these TV outlets in LA and New York who want to maybe take hardcore history and apply it to television. And we get in these meetings and everything they say to me is, can we dumb it down some more? Can we dumb it down some more? Can we dumb it down a little bit? And finally you say to yourself, you know, you're going to end up instead of hurting me, you're going to destroy my brand. If I let you have any control, you're going to turn me into an ice road trucker monster quester. <laughs> and then there will be no internet for me to return to after you've ruined what I do. And you find yourself leaving these meetings thinking television's not going to help me. It's going to destroy me. And you know, it's not like the old days. I mean, they don't pay like they used to. You can't make this incredible living with TV anymore. Eventually, you get into these meetings, and like I said, people think you podcast because you can't get those other gigs. What you realize once you're exposed to those other gigs is you have the better gig right now, right. and that's the most shocking part of all, I think. I was going to ask you, have you been put in the position where somebody has made you an offer to, say, take Hardcore History onto TV or, or radio again and you've sat down and, you know, thought about it and been like, you know what? I'm not giving up the creativity. There's no way. Sorry. Well, it's, le it's less about that than th that's not what they want. They because it's it's too intelligent. They're not looking for that. Um, uh. They they want they want me to dumb everything down and turn into a fear factor kind of. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, is they want to turn me into what they already have. They don't want to take what we have working on the Internet and move that to television. And so, you know, you kind of think to yourself, are people really going to like this, you know, when they want to create this character? I had this happen to me in radio, too, where this program director came in, and whenever a new program director comes into a radio station, they mm -hmm. feel like they need to change it so that they put their own stamp on it. And the guy comes in there and says, we're going to turn Dan Carlin into this really controversial figure that when people talk about him, they say, can you believe what Dan Carlin did this week? And I said, and what if that doesn't work? And they said, well, you know, we're taking a chance. And I said, no, no, if it doesn't work, I'm out of a job and I can never work again. And you just go on to the next talk show host. I think part of what you get very protective of after a while is you. I mean, these people can, in, 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 in an attempt to get this golden goose of a television show, they can turn you into something that will ruin your career if you're not protective of what you've already built. And so that's the part that was such a turnoff with television. They, they bring you in because hardcore history is successful, but if they had their way, they'll turn you into something that doesn't just fail on television, but that boomerangs back and destroys your podcast too. So, I mean, um, I found that whole thing to be both illuminating and depressing. It certainly takes that out of your rearview mirror and says, God, would I like a TV show? No, I'm really glad I don't have a TV show. Yeah, and you know, now that I think about it, a lot of it just might be where people go to get certain types of content. I mean, a lot of people just tune in to the TV just to space out. So they've honed in on what works, and it's the reality TV shows and the the mindless stuff. And look, I'm not going to say I'm above it. I love me some modern family as much as the next guy, but that's some witty stuff, you know? So, and then people turn into their uh, podcasts or what have you during their commutes when they're prepping themselves for a, uh, you know, a successful day. Well, look at the numbers too. That's the part that always blows me away is that when you look how fragmented 
media has become, everybody in media is settling for a much smaller portion of the pie. If you look at a show like The Golden Girls in 1990, which is not one of the most popular shows on television, your standard you know, top 25 show, it's getting about 30 million people watching it a week. 30 million people today is a massive, massive hit. Yeah, um, so point. you look at some of these cable networks, the kind that I would have been on had some of these TV projects worked out. I have more people downloading my Hardcore History podcast than they have watching their primetime shows. And it's not because I have so many listeners. It's because they have so few. <laughs> and, 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 and so to me... That also changes the dynamic somewhat. If you're trying to protect the show with the most listeners and make sure you don't screw that up, that's my podcast. That's not this TV show they're talking about doing with me. So that's the other part that changes the dynamics a little bit. If you're talking about giving me a show with 30 million people, that's different. If you're talking about getting me 100,000 people on some cable network, I have more than 100,000 people now. Right. You know, I mean, that's not, it's interesting how that changes the equation. No, that's a good point. And, I, you know, it takes being in that world and seeing that most people just attach certain meanings to different types of media. You know, TV's glamorous, movies even more so, radio's pretty awesome, podcasts are, you know, two kids in their basement or something. You know, so it's, but it's come a long way in, in just the past few years, and I think it'll continue to go there. And I still don't understand why anyone listens to the radio in the car, because if I have to listen to one more, you know, advertisement or commercial, I'm going to, you know, ram my bumper into somebody. Well, take heart, though, at this point, and that's that every time a new media has appeared on the scene, they've always been the little brother that got no respect. <laughs> I mean, television is a perfect example. Today, we look at television as a massive end result thing that most people want to end up at. When television first appeared, nobody wanted to go on it. They couldn't fill time. Milton Berle and a few others were, were playing in that playground in the Texaco Theater all by themselves because it was considered to be beneath movie stars. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it, it was really one of those things where, I mean, radio and movies had the same dynamic. This is the standard way things happen. And then when you get big hits and money comes, believe me, that's when the media moguls notice, the whole dynamic changes. I mean, I fully imagine that online programs within 10 years are going to have the cachet that television had by the 1960s, 1970s. It's funny because I talk to, to Chris all the time where I mentioned to him, I'm like, hey, all it's going to take once we get Wi-Fi in cars, podcasting is going to take off almost like the radio did. That's, I think that's going to be the Trojan horse for podcasting is once we can get Wi-Fi connectivity in cars and people are able to download these shows and pick and do the a la carte thing, I think it's just going to blow up even more. I think, the, I think that having the car that will just let you plug your iPod in there, which is already the new cars out there, yeah. uh, will we'll start that process already. And then people will, there will be a demand to be able to update podcasts and find new ones while you're on the road. I think we're already there. Um, and I agree with you. I think that the number, I mean, the potential for the medium has just barely been scratched now. And I think part of it, too, is. Wait, you know, I always think about people that would have benefited from podcasting 30 or 40 years ago. I mean, the people that are naturals for this are the stand-up comedians. Can you imagine the Eddie Murphys and the Richard <laughs> Pryors back in the day having no access? I mean, MC Hammer used to sell his stuff out of the back of his hatchback <laughs> at baseball games. Instead, if you if you're talented, this provides you an outlet. And if you're funny like a Richard Pryor or an Eddie Murphy, they will find you because of this in a way that 
you literally couldn't have hoped for 30 or 40 years ago. I mean, that's when you're going to start to see this really take off. When when people go from zero, I mean, like the Korean uh, Gangnam Style guy. I mean, that's that's a milestone in YouTube's development. Yeah. When that happens in podcasting and everything else, that's when you're going to see the. I mean, I already think we're at respectability, but that's when you're going to see everyone take notice and realize that. I'm, well, you already see it in television. I mean, if you're going to start a TV show today, I would tell you to go start a web series instead. Sure. The, co- the costs are less. The advantage is more. I mean, it's it, the numbers are all trending in the direction where you'd be better off doing it. I think that the more that happens and the more those shows, I mean, Felicia Day and her people doing what they do, I mean, these are going to start to make inroads. And you know why they'll notice in the old media? They won't notice because of success. They'll notice because of cost. And they'll go, my God, we could have almost as much success as we have now at one fiftieth of the price. That's what they'll notice. Chris makes fun of me a lot because 95% of the podcasts I listen to are comedy podcasts. But now I see guys like Mark Marin, Pete Holmes, they're all getting TV series that are starting to come. And it's from what they've done, these interview style podcasts that they've created. And now these comedians are getting they're getting shows on TV. I don't I don't make fun of you for listening to comedy. (laughs) I make fun of you for listening to podcasts all day long. That's That's true. I I do that as well. I wouldn't do that. We need people like him. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the thing is, though, that that this, if nothing else, you know, my uh uh, I have a guy I do this with, and he says uh, it's not always how many people are listening. Sometimes it's who they are. And even if you think no one's listening to what you're doing podcasting-wise, I'm talking to the audience out there, and you just start a podcast, if nothing else, you're actually putting an audition tape online. When I was in TV news and you wanted to get a job as a reporter somewhere, the hardest part was getting people to look at your audition tape. Nowadays, having a podcast is a little like having an audition tape online. And like my grandmother used to say, putting it out there and giving fate an opportunity to intervene. I mean, if you're good and you've got that tape out there, your life may be going terribly. And then all of a sudden someone might call you and say, are you the guy or the (laughs) the girl who just did that podcast I heard? And you never know where things like that may go. It's such a great point. You know, John and I allude to that often because when we created the podcast, we thought, oh, this will be funny. Like 50, 100 of our friends will listen to it. And uh, we went to the gym and we came back in an hour's time. It was at like 5,000. And then next thing you know, is 20,000 and 50,000 for the first episode. And we were like, what the hell just happened? But, you know, it was right place, right time. iTunes took notice. People took notice. You know, so... It's one of those things where don't overthink it. Just do it. If it's something you're interested in and if it's good, people will tell you. And if it's bad, people will tell you. <laughs> Isn't iTunes wonderful, though? I mean, I feel oh. like iTunes has gone and been such a force in making this work. I mean, just the fact that how much, you know, they could have, if they had wanted to, been a promoter of the big brands out there and taken money from the big brands to just push them at the expense of all of we little guys. And instead, I think they realized how good it was for the whole idea of podcasting to put the little guys and mix them in with the big guys. So they saw your show next to ESPN, next to, right. you know, other. And, and and I thought that was genius. And I think iTunes has gone a long way towards helping us all be successful because I think they think quite correctly that it's good for podcasting in general. I mean, I don't know where we'd be without iTunes, just like you mentioned. They've been a huge supporter every step of the way and helping us gain an audience and everything. It's definitely all about the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. I mean, Apple's a smart company and they've, they've shown it. 
I think this is a great place to end the interview. And Dan, thank you so much for coming on here and talking to us about your podcast, Common Sense and Hardcore History, and just the whole landscape of uh, podcasting. We, we love talking about it and love talking to people like you. Is there anywhere else that you would like our listeners to, to look to find you? I know you have dancarlin.com, but is there anything else that you want to direct our listeners to? No, you guys pretty much nailed it. I want to thank you. It's an honor to be on. I appreciate you having me. All right, Dan. Well, thanks so much. Appreciate it. I wish you guys the best of luck. Thank you. You as well. Have a good night. You too. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Dan Carlin. Please excuse my geeking out a little bit. I love talking to podcasters and other people of the tech industry. Drinking game. Every time the word podcast comes up in that interview, take a shot. Do not do that. We are not responsible for anybody getting alcohol poisoning and or going to the hospital. No, actually, actually, that's a really good point. I wonder yeah, if disclaimer. Yeah, but seriously, I paused for a minute and I was like, wow, all I'm hearing is the word podcast. Yes, yes, you did. Anyways, yeah, so thanks for tuning in. We have an interview every day this week. We have two next week, so we're building up a nice little cachet, and that's so we can concentrate on making everything better. We're creating content. We're working on our book. We're working on our newsletters, all this cool stuff. We appreciate you consuming what we put out in the world. Go share it with somebody. Make their day. Yeah, and head over to hypervocal.com and see what uh, my good friend Chris Stemp over here has started writing for them. That's right. Check it out. All right. See you guys next week. <laughs>